All right, if you have a Bible, if you would please turn with me to John chapter 17. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5, or you can look on the paper that's been handed out. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you, have, that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. These are the words of our Lord. We're taking a look this semester at the question of why uh, believing matters. And we're doing that by looking more at the object of our belief, like we said last week, rather than on belief itself. What do we mean by that? Well, as simply as we can put it, we simply mean to say that there's more to understand about believing by focusing on the object of your belief rather than getting all churned up about whether or not you're believing properly. Look, this is my premise this semester, and I think it's actually fairly simple, but I'm going to keep repeating it, is we get really distracted when we get all hung up on how to believe, when all you really have to do is to understand when you consider it what you're believing in. And I know I'm not supposed to end a sentence in a preposition, but there it is. In other words, we don't focus, in other words, faith is much more about its object than it is about its exercise. We get all churned up about what it means to believe when the truth of the matter is we believe whenever we focus on the object of our belief. Let me see if I can put it this way. The better that you know things, the more that you trust them. You ever thought about this? Okay. On the one hand, you have a man who starts to climb down a very old, rickety ladder. But he has absolute confidence that the ladder is going to hold him. Why? Because he doesn't understand the object of his faith. He's going to fall, regardless of his attitude towards it. But on the other side, you have a man who very hesitantly starts to climb down a, a solid, very sturdy ladder uh, that he almost has no confidence at all that's going to hold him. But his shaky faith in that ladder doesn't matter, does it? In other words, he doesn't know the object of his belief very well either. So tonight, whether you find yourself absolutely confident in your belief in God, or perhaps confident in your disbelief of God, or you may feel very shaky in your Christianity, or your atheism for that matter, a study on what the Bible actually teaches about these things, I'm suggesting is exactly what you need. And we're doing that this semester by looking at this ancient creed that Christians would say to each other when they got together, known as the Apostles' Creed. And we come to a topic tonight that, quite honestly, is getting more and more difficult for people in your generation to really buy into. It's the line that goes like this, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Three things tonight that I want you to think about as we consider what it means to think about God. We need to understand what it means to believe in God, what it means to believe in the Trinity, and finally, what it means to believe in God's fatherly almightiness. What in the world is that? Well, stay tuned. 
First point, I want to dive into this. The, the, the Apostles' Creed launches from the very beginning and says, I believe in God. Now look, for me, it's actually a little bit weird. Uh, when I was in college, if you were to do sort of a cultural uh, exposition, there was at that time a sense of, of a renewed spirituality. In other words, when I was in college, there were a lot of people that were leaving some of their doubts and saying, you know what? I really think there might just be something out there. But in many ways, that sort of action from, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago has resulted in a reaction among your generation with a renewed, in many ways, outright disbelief in, disbelief in God. And to be honest with you, you saw signs of this coming up even through the 90s. There's a philosopher uh, by the name of Daniel Dennett who back in the 90s wrote a book called uh, uh, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. And he says this, he says, The kindly God who lovingly fashioned each and every one of us and sprinkled the sky with shining stars for our delight, that God is, like Santa Claus, a myth of childhood. Not anything that a sane, undiluted adult could literally believe in. That God must either be turned into a symbol for something less concrete or abandoned altogether. That's the sentiment that I'm suggesting reigns in a lot of the popularizing of people today when they wrestle with God. And people look at me all the time, they're like, well, Les, I mean, how would you respond to that guy when he says that? And to be honest with you, my first reaction when I listened to the quote would be something like this. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> I wouldn't believe in that God either. Um, you know, the kindly, what, star-sprinkling God that people oftentimes want to believe that he is would not, like, garner any of my trust at all. <laughs> I wouldn't find a reason to uh, believe in that God because the problem is, is that this Bible never talks about that kind of God. Look, the passage that James just read to you from John chapter 7, Jesus is constantly, as he's looking towards heaven and talking to his Father, keeps mentioning this word. Did you notice it getting repeated? It's actually repeated throughout the entire book of John, where he keeps returning to this idea of glory, Look, y'all, the word glory literally means fame. It means weightiness. It means renown or perhaps even luminescence, something that shines and automatically attracts your eyes to it. In other words, Jesus talks about his Father in terms that simply resist bland categories. You know what I mean by that? In other words, the God that is... Jesus is suggesting, is a God who is sufficiently interesting in his own character to actually be worthy of your complete life trust. Look, if you start to grasp this, it'll help you understand why the Bible talks the way that it does very often. One of my favorite passages comes from Isaiah 40. Now listen to the prophet reasoning with you, okay? In verse 12, he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? 
Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Perhaps you've read verses like that. But you do realize that all of Isaiah's list of rhetorical questions there are simply his way of saying this. And in many ways, this is my premise for the entire semester. Our problem when we struggle with believing in God is that most of the time we have exchanged the God who is for a shrunken version of him. And we have dragged him, as it were, into our world and made him subject to our understanding and and, and limited by our understanding. But start investigating the true God, the right God, the God who is, and you'll find something strange happening. You know what you'll find? (laughs) You'll find yourself believing. There was an old preacher back in the late 1800s by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You need to know that name. He's kind of a big deal in the uh, sort of British uh, uh, um, uh, preaching during his time. One of the most popular preachers in London during his day. In one of his sermons, he actually was quoted as saying something like this. He said, would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go. Plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout, listen, listen, musing on the subject of the Godhead. (laughs) What's he saying? He's saying all you have to do is to begin to dive into who God really is. And the mere consideration of him results in belief. Now look, honestly, we could spend an entire semester, and very well maybe in the future, talking about the various ways in which Christian philosophers have, and in my opinion very ably, defended belief in God. We could spend some time tonight talking about the ontological, the the teleological, the, the cosmological arguments for the existence of God. But for now, I simply want to offer you one thought, because we don't have time to go through all that, (laughs) thankfully for your sakes, right? But I want to offer you one often very misunderstood and overlooked point by those who doubt whether there really is a God at all. Think about this for a second. The more complex the object, the more complex is the knowing of that object. Let me say that again. The more complex is the object of your consideration, the more complex is the way in which you consider that particular object. For instance, for many of you, you're saying to yourself, I know that there's ice cream left in my freezer at home. You know, you bought the ice cream, you're the one who placed it in the freezer, uh, you saw it tonight just before you came, and you plan to have some right after you finish studying tonight, right? In other words, that kind of knowing is fairly straightforward. It's obvious to you. But what if the object of your knowing is decidedly above you? And I mean above you in in rank, in intelligence, in skill, even, dare I say, in being. 
you begin to realize that the quality, the quantity, and the extent of your knowing of that object, listen to this, listen to this, is dependent upon that object revealing itself to you. The funny thing is, is you do this every single day. Because you go into a professor's classroom, okay, and you sit there and you look at this person and say, how can I know what this person knows? Because they have a PhD, they've studied for years. Well, your knowing what that person knows is dependent upon them elucidating it to you. In other words, when you have a, a lesser object knowing a greater object, it's dependent upon the greater object revealing themselves. That's always the case. So, so here's the next question. What if that being is God himself? What if? In other words, if, if he really is there, I'm willing to consider for now, if, if he really is the creator and we're the creature, if that kind of God actually exists, then our knowledge of him is going to be fully dependent upon his willingness to let us know him. Let that bake your noodle for a little while this week. Because what happens is it'll help you understand exactly why the Bible talks the way it does. Because in almost every page of Scripture, we find that God is revealing himself. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day unto day pours out speech, and night after night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans that we studied last semester, went so far as to say this, brace yourselves, <laughs> for what can be known about God is plain to them. Them being everybody. <laughs> because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they, being everyone, are without excuse and can't say that we didn't know he was there. Look, this is where I'm going to finish with all this, and we'll move on to the next point. In the end, what I'm saying is what makes believing in God so hard according to the Bible, is not because there's not enough evidence to do so. Ginger and I were watching the Discovery Channel a while back, and because of the nature of my job, I have to stop on the ones that are entitled, you know, Mysteries of the Bible or whatever it is, right? You have to stop. It's a vocational hazard, right? My poor wife has to endure these kind of things while I scream at the television. And on one particular occasion, there was a, a, someone being interviewed, an atheist, and the interviewer looked and said, you know, I'm just wondering, like, what happens if you die and you're wrong? Like, all of a sudden, there is a God, and God looks at you and says, hey, why didn't you believe in me? What are you going to say? The guy did not hesitate for a second. He looked up and he said, oh, that's simple. I would look at him in the face and I would say, you did not give me enough evidence to believe in you. Hmm. Now, look. You may agree with that person. That's fine. I'm glad you're here considering these questions. But I simply want to put it in front of you that the Bible says that that is not what is happening. What the Bible says is, is that what you and I have done is we have tampered with the evidence. 
in our hearts in order to make the evidence actually say something that it clearly doesn't say. And you want to know why we're doing that? (laughs) Because we want to do what we want to do. In other words, we have built into us, listen, listen, a God, an anti-God bias that takes all of the information and twists it and turns it and molds it to where it can't be there. So that there is a process of even psychological self-deception. Can I even talk that way? Isn't that weird to think about? That all of a sudden, the world that I see may not be the world that is. How do you know? Again, I simply invite you to go look into this. Let me ask you a question. And this is my suggestion for you and my application. I wonder if you would be willing tonight to not just deal with your doubts, but begin to actually doubt your doubts. Which is it? I mean, was it, what, what was really motivating those doubts? Is it because God was carefully considered before you sort of jettisoned him? Or did you leave him behind because he was just a bother? Hmm. The first thing that the catechism, or the creed says, is I believe in God. Secondly, and these other two points are much shorter, so bear with me. Secondly, not only do I believe in God, but we have to see that I believe in the triune God. In other words, we move from the general question about belief in God to the specific question about, well, which God do we believe in? You know, Les, I'm willing to agree that there's a, I don't know, higher power out there or something like that. Um, The question, though, is which one are we talking about? Well, Jesus addresses this in John 17. Because when he's addressing heaven, as he looks up to heaven to speak, he's talking to God as, and here's the word, his father. And, of course, he does this throughout the, uh, the Gospels. And it was for this reason that the earliest of Christians began to speak of God as if he was a trinity. In other words, God comes to us in the uh, Apostles' Creed not in some sort of generic uh, theism, if you will, but he comes for us in the form of a trinity. As a matter of fact, the Apostles' Creed is actually outlined with the first section being about God. We're doing that tonight and next week. The next section is a whole lot of information about Jesus, the Son, the second member of the Trinity. And then the final section is about the Spirit, the third person. It's a Trinitarian creed, to be quite honest with you. In other words, God is basically saying, I'm not just a me, I'm also an us. And so therefore, at the very heart of Christian belief, and honestly, the orthodox Christian formula for as long as there's been Christianity is, three persons... One essence. Three persons, one essence. In other words, in God we have both plurality, community, and unity in his own being. Now look, once again, (laughs) there's a whole lot more to say about this than 30 minutes could ever afford. But I simply want to offer you this one thought about the Trinity. And that's this, that in my opinion, this doctrine most notably distinguishes Christianity from the rest of world religions. Because only in Christianity, follow me with this, do you have the idea, the concept of loving relationship that begins in the very self-definition of God. Think about this for a second. You know, I, I love to ask people this. You know, why do you think God created the universe? And every now and then you get somebody to be like, well, 
You know, I like to think that God created man because he was lonely, lonely, and he wanted someone to love, and so he created human beings so he could love them, like pets. <laughs> well, there's a lot wrong with that that we could talk about, but the truth of the matter is God has never been lonely. It's just not part of the facts. As a matter of fact, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have, have existed, Christian theology has always taught, from all eternity so that in God himself, the idea of relationship is built in. And I would argue that in other monotheistic religions, and obviously pantheistic religions, the idea of relationship has to get imported in later. And I know you're saying, well, so what's the benefit of that? Hmm. Look, is it possible that the reason why falling in love feels like the meaning of life? <laughs> Maybe the reason why loneliness is one of the most profound of human frailties or maybe the reason why the more isolated that you get, the less sane you get is because you were created in the image of a God who is himself a community. And so the most profound questions of your life are going to deal with what to do about other people. That's why falling in love feels like the meaning of life. Why loneliness goes so much deeper than I can even explain to you. And why it is that when hurts happen there, they go way deep. Look, our instinct to want to know others, I'm saying, comes from a God who is deeply and intimately known by all three members of his own glorious essence and his eternal coexistent existence. Look, y'all. The Trinity, like no other, not only helps me understand God, the Trinity helps me understand me. <laughs> it's, it, it rings true inside the soul, I would submit to you. And the Bible assumes it. So we find not only do we believe in God, but we believe, secondly, in the triune God. And then thirdly and finally, we believe, as the Apostles' Creed says, in God's fatherly almightiness. And I don't even know whether almightiness is a word, but... I was very helped by this point uh, from Tim Keller's wonderful book called Reason for God. Because only when you sort of plow through some of the superficiality when people talk about God are you ready to understand what the Apostles' Creed says about him. Because the Apostles' Creed puts together two things which you and I uh, don't know how to put together very easily. Look, first of all, it says that God is a father. He's a father. And I recognize that for a larger and growing population of you, that is an extremely uncomfortable uh, association to place upon God. Some of you have, when you think of Father, very negative, painful associations to that word. And lots of people reject the image of God being a Father for that very reason. But I simply want you to note something. That to object to God's fatherhood is in many ways to prove the point. Because aren't you saying in rejecting that that you kind of want for God to sort of possess what good fathers possess. The warmth, the protection, the provision. In other words, the fact that your earthly father might have been none of those things may very well be the, th the fact that shows you that you were built to have a real daddy. Oftentimes, Jesus will refer to his heavenly father as Papa, Daddy, 
the intimate term that you use between a father and a daughter and a, a, and a father and a son. And all I'm suggesting, is it possible that there are echoes inside of your own soul that you were raised for that careful guidance and love? That there is to be intimacy with the one who made you. God is Father. But then secondly, he is almighty. Now, for those of you who have troubles with the fact that God is Father, you got just as many trouble with the idea that he's almighty. Look, I mean, for most of us, we look and say, almighty? God is in control? Uh, Have you seen my life? Uh, Have you watched the news? In other words, there's a lot of people that when they get into college and they're sort of exposed to the larger doubting world and and a world that is full of pain and suffering and horrendous evil, they look and say, I cannot even imagine how you could assume that there was a God involved in anything like that. Because if he was, he would have stopped it by now. Right? Again, the problem of evil is a sticky one. And I would encourage you to continue to delve and look into that problem. I simply want to offer you this tonight as as a way of moving on. The Bible is just concerned about your cries for justice as you are, if not more. And the very assumption from Genesis to Revelation is that God has set in motion a series of events, follow me here, that will result ultimately in the total eradication of evil and of pain and of alienation and of sorrow. Now, we struggle to believe that, but I simply want to offer you this idea that God is just as concerned as you are. Okay, so now here's my question, and I'll finish with this question. How do you put both of those together? On the one hand, you have this image of a father who is loving and tender and wonderful, On the other hand, you have this idea of God being almighty, who's bringing justice and law and truth to bear on every inch of his creation. And if you think about this for a second, you realize that most people want to choose one from the other. This is is the sort of little nugget that Keller gave to me that I think is brilliant. You see, on the one hand, some of you are only into the father God person. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) For you, you're sort of more liberally minded. You're kind of looking, thinking to yourself, you know, all this sort of God who would ever tell us what to do is just a bunch of bunk, you know. Uh, uh, The truth is he's just a loving father who just meets us where we are. He doesn't ever tell us anything that we should or should not do. In other words, God sort of in that is sort of a benign, sort of um, innocent grandfather wafting about through eternity or something like that. But on the other hand, the more, uh, (laughs) some of the more Republican of you, you know what I'm saying, are, looking in, are, are much more preoccupied with the almighty God, right? Because what you want from him is raw justice. It's justice that we need from God. You know, better laws, more rules, a return to family values. I'm pro-family values, by the way. I've got a family myself, doggone it. But you know what you don't think about whenever you've got that kind of God? You don't realize that if you're going to have a God of justice, then you will not escape his scrutiny either. So what's it going to be? Is it going to be the benign, sort of helpless and hopeless God who can't assert his opinion anywhere? Or is it going to be the God who thunders injustice and brings about right wherever there is wrong, including the wrong inside your own soul? Hmm. One last thought. 
Do you not see then why it was that the earliest of Christians saw something extraordinary in the idea of this man from Nazareth who came along and claimed himself to be God? Because in his action and what Jesus does when he climbs upon the cross is on the one hand, he affirms for us that yes, there is justice in the universe. So much so that I am going to receive in my own person and soul the justice that he demands. God is demanding a life and he gets it in Jesus. And so in one sense at the cross we can affirm God's almightiness. But do you realize that in the very same act God is showing himself to be the most tender and the most loving by sacrificing his only son so that what? He can be in relationship with his people. This is it. This is what crossed me over the edge. In my opinion, only in Jesus Christ do you resolve the fundamental tension in the heart of God. Do you have a God of love or do you have a God of law? Only in Jesus Christ do you have both of those things coming together because Jesus comes as a perfect substitute, fully upholding the law of God on the one hand, but fully upholding the love of God all in the same person? In other words, if you're looking for God, if you're looking for a distinctive triune God, if you're looking for a God who can put together God's fatherly almightiness, Jesus says, you're going to have to look at me. And I love this thought. I love Keller's thought here. God did not come and give us an airtight argument. He came and gave us an airtight person in his own son, Jesus Christ. You want to find God? My suggestion to you is to look there. As always, that's an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, to the best of our ability, we would say to you that we are looking. Some of us, Lord Jesus, are haunted by very dark thoughts, uh, haunted by the possibility of a world where you are absent, or even worse, that you don't care. And we struggle on the inside as to whether or not there's some substance there. And so would you maybe tonight, actually would you please tonight, manifest yourself to us that as we see the real God, the real triune God, the real God who shows himself in the face of Jesus Christ, we might have our doubts settled. We might find rest. We might find joy. We might find brilliance. We might find something that is sufficiently fascinating to at least bring us back next week to look into it more. Would you make us at least, Lord Jesus, that curious tonight? so that we might return again to consider these things. If you would do so, our time would not have been a waste. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.